0: The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher, Sensei Amala Wrightson.
1: It's the seventh day of our spring, seven-day sishin, the 8th of September 2018. And I'm going to take up another story today from The Hidden Lamp, stories from 25 centuries of awakened women, edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. and the story we're looking at today is called Sonin's Shadeless Tree. Um, it's from the 13th to the 14th century, Japanese again, and um, the, the protagonist in this story, um, Mokufu Sonin, um, appears in our Pool of Radiance chant. Uh, For people who are not familiar with this, this is um, a chant we've um, Uh, created based on one that's been done in Sweden for quite a number of years in which the names of uh, women masters appear and also um, a number of the masters that we're familiar with from the koan curriculum but who are not in our particular ancestral line and um, using this this, um, text The Hidden Lamp we've been um, on and off uh, exploring some of these, the, 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 stories of these women. So our story today. Master Keizan Jokin asked the nun Mokufu Sonen, the winter is coming to an end and the springtime is arriving. There is an order to this. What is your understanding? Sonin replied in the branches of a tree without shade how could there be any seasons Kazan asked her what about right now Sonin bowed Kazan then transmitted the dharma robe to her Just a little bit about these two. First of all, Mokufu Sonen. Um, we don't have very much about her, um, but we do know some some things, uh, mainly from um, uh, Keizan's biography. Um, she was a benefactor and a student of Keizan Jokin, who's um, We'll say a little bit more about in a minute. She and her husband gave a large parcel of land to Kaizan and invited him to found a monastery on the land. Um, much later she uh, ordained and and subsequently also received Dharma transmission from Kaizan. Her husband also uh, became a monk, and she was the, the second uh, woman to whom a Keizan gave dharma transmission, which was in the first, I'm pretty sure, that, the f- um, that up until that time, um, there weren't any nuns who'd been given dharma transmission in Japan. Later, later in her life, she became the abbess of Insu in an important uh, Soto um, convent. Kazan uh, called her uh, the reincarnation of his grandmother, and and said that they were inseparable and they had been for lifetimes. He he said that they were as close as a magnet and iron. They had this this very deep Dharma friendship. And this notion that um, Sonin was his grandmother from uh, uh, Reborn came from the fact that he had a dream in, in which his grandmother appeared to him and asked to be ordained. And then soon after this, um, Sonin appeared and asked if she could engage with with Kazan in a Dharma dialogue and our our story is um, the exchange that they had at that point and then um, a little bit later on still she asked to ordain and so he connected these two the dream and her appearance Um, also a little bit about Keizan Jokan, his dates are 1268 to 1325. And um, he was one of the two founders of the Soto school in Japan, um, of course, Master Dogen being the other. And um, sometimes they're actually referred to as being. Uh, the father and the mother of Soto Zen in Japan so Dogen the father, Keizan the mother and what he especially did was was um, popularize the Soto school, make it more accessible. Um, Dogen had established it but it was still quite Chinese in form and and confined within um, a few monasteries but Keizan was to, to, to sort of bring it to the people and he founded um, this is Keizan Sojiji which is still one of the two um, primary uh, Soto training temples in Japan along with Aheiji. Keizan's mother uh, became the abbess of a convent and he had many female disciples he, he was, his, in his first eight years, he was brought up by his grandmother. Um, he became a novice at the, at the early age of 13. And this is coincidentally the same age that Sonin was when she was married. And of course, in those days, um, marriages among um, the aristocracy were very much um, to do with um, f- family alliances and politics. Kezan is, of course, also the author of the Denko Roku, um, which we've been using lately to uh, look into the um, figures in our regular long ancestral line. And the Denko Roku is made up of uh, transmission stories starting with Shakyamuni Buddha and working uh, up all the way to uh, Ejo who was um, Master Dogen's disciple and heir apparently apparently the Denko Roku was based on a, more or less on a year of uh, Te- Te- Kazan's Taishos which would mean he was doing one, about um, one a week. And our present, our present story uh, actually resembles a little bit in its, in its structure, the stories in the Denko Rocky. You have an exchange between um, master and disciple, and then um, it f- finishes off with uh, transmission mind-to-mind transmission Uh, this is a little different because it doesn't doesn't indicate that that um, Sonnen had an an awakening experience but it does um it does have her receiving the robe at the at the end of the story Uh, Keizan's grandmother Myochi was one of Dogen's first supporters when he returned to Japan so this lots of sort of almost familial connections between this uh, these uh, various figures. Keizan in his in his writing acknowledged that he owed a great debt to his grandmother and also um he spoke very highly of his mother as well she, he said that her, her constant praying to kanon was what had enabled him to become a monk as i mentioned his mother became the abbess of a of a um convent and a teacher in her own right and uh, perhaps it was her example that um inspired Keizan to uh, teach so many women. It was, and this wasn't something that was at all um, happening in Japan at the time. And he, um, he established a total of five monasteries for female monks uh, in his, the length of his career. So, um, let's just turn now to our story again. Let's just read it again. Master Kazan Jokin asked the nun Mokufu Sonen, The winter is coming to an end, and the springtime is arriving. There is an order to this. What is your understanding? Sonen replied, The branches of a tree without shade. In the branches of a tree without shade, how could there be any seasons? Kazan asked her, What about right now? Sonan bowed. Kazan then transmitted the Dharma robe to her. From the at from the sources that I had available in preparing this talk, um, seems to suggest that the the, f- the the first part of this exchange happened when when Sonin was quite young. Um, one author recounts her coming to um, Kazan and, and asking if she can engage with him in in Dharma dialogue. And then this this exchange comes out of that. Um, the, the biographies also suggest that that she she did receive dharma transmission, but it was it happened many 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 years later. Um, so perhaps um, a writer brought these two parts together to make the story more like the ones in the Denko Roku. Um, and we know from others that these these stories can be very compressed and and can have long periods of time sort of tucked into their them um, and elapsing between the different parts in the story, but we'll just we'll just um take it take it at face value um, that it did happen this way so it's it starts off it starts off with um with Kazan's question. The winter is coming to an end and the springtime is arriving. There is an order to this. What is your understanding? So it's, a, it's um, koan-like in, in that it, it's, you could take this as being a, a testing question. And it's certainly an appropriate one for our spring session. We've been it seems mostly this week we've been um, experiencing the, the the winter part of that uh, pair, but now, now, today, um, winter becoming spring. so what's what's Kazan asking here? Is there is an order to this this um, spring following winter? Spring follows winter, summer follows spring. We can we can rely on this. It is it is one of the the ordering factors of our existence. It's one that is is particularly appreciated in Japanese culture. And a huge amount of very fine art has come out of simply examining this this process of the, the changing seasons. And Sonin here could have could have just gone along with Kazan and spoken some verse on spring, or quoted something, but instead she presents the other side. She says, in the branches of a tree without shade, how could there be any seasons? Branches of a tree without shade. How could there be any seasons? This is more than just a bare tree. This is a tree without even the, 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 the tenuous fine shades or shadows of of bare branches. What does she mean when she says a tree without shade? What kind of of tree casts no shadow? This image of the shadeless tree um, appears in one of the koans in the Hikigun Rocky, the Blue Cliff Record. number 18 um, the national teachers seamless monument and this is the story is about a an Emperor who um, went to visit a great teacher and, and it's called the national teacher because he taught the Emperor um, and asked him a question the national teacher was on his deathbed he was about to die and the emperor said to him, after a hundred years, what will you need? Uh, this, is, this is a polite way of saying, uh, after you die, what, what do you want me to do or offer? In other words, when you're, when you're no longer with us, well, how, can we, how can we express our appreciation for you? And the national teacher said, build a seamless monument for this old monk. So one of the points of the koan is to see what he might be meaning by a seamless monument. But the emperor wasn't sure what he meant. And so he asked, please tell me, master, what should the monument look like? He's hoping for a clue or two about what this might be. Then the national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked, do you understand? The silence was his answer to the emperor's question. But the emperor did not understand. And so the national teacher said, I have a disciple to whom I have tr- transmitted the teaching, Tangen." who is well-versed in this matter, please summon him and ask him about it. And we have to remember that this national teacher was dying. So he passes the task on to his disciple. After the national teacher had passed on, the Emperor summoned Tangan and asked him about it. And then Tangan recited a poem and this is where the image of the shadowless tree appears. And this is his, his poem. South of Sho and north of Tan in between there is gold sufficient to a nation Beneath the shadowless tree, a community ferry boat. No holy one in the emerald palace you see. So I have to just unpack this a little bit. South of Sho and north of Tan. This was like, would be like us saying um, from Cape Brianga to Buff. From Cape Rienger to Bluff, in between there is gold sufficient to a nation. There is gold sufficient to a nation. Riches exactly in proportion to our need. It's, it's another way of, of, of saying what Master Hakwan says. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. But we wander about on this earth like, like, like children of rich birth who are lost. But actually, we just have to dig down to find the gold that's there. It's practice, just digging down. It's here, in this room, in our hearts. Um, Sekido in his comment on this koan, he says, The pure spirit of Zen, like virgin gold, fills the country of the mind. It is solid and pure. Tangin goes on, uh, beneath the shadowless tree, a community ferry boat. So when you take up this koan, one of the things to do is to see if you can find another way to express this shadowless tree that brings out its meaning. Everything that has substance casts a shadow. But we are taught in the, the Heart Sutra that actually everything substantial is fundamentally insubstantial. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. beneath the shadowless tree, a community ferry boat. This ferry boat um, is uh, the vehicle that carries us to the other shore, the shore of liberation, enlightenment. And it's it's important to note that it is a a community ferry ferry boat, not a a one-person kayak, but public transport. There's room for everyone on this very boat. In fact, it only works really if, if everyone comes along with us. Could understand this as, is just a way of saying we're all in this together. the only way we can wake up is, is with all beings. Which is what we say when we, we take the refuges. I vow that with all beings. But this this fairy boat sitting under the shadowless tree points to the way in which we are all in this together. part of this great flux of empty form, at, at bottom insubstantial in the sense that, that there is no abiding nature to us. Everything is, is changing constantly. We we turn into each other. We're dependent on each other. And this goes on endlessly, this change. This um, poem ends with no holy one in the emerald par- palace you see we get across, we get, say we get across this to the other shore, to the shore of alignment, and there's a beautiful palace there made entirely out of emeralds. We go inside the palace, but we're dismayed because there's nobody home. Comments on this. He says, "Can find it." The boat arrives at the opposite shore, where there is a beautiful palace. But in it you find no holy one, no Buddha, no mind, no thing, is a Buddhist saying. But if you listen intently, you will hear a faint sound of subtle music, which grows louder and louder, and you will come to see the majestic constellation of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, Shakyamuni, Manjushri, Samantabhadra, and all the others. Secho makes comments on the, on the various um lines of this poem in the last one he he, he says after this this line about the holy one in the emerald palace, he says, All is finished. the seamless monument is built he's saying really something very like what appears in the Mumon Khan, one of the, one of the verses. Before taking a step, you have already arrived. Before the tongue has moved, the teaching is finished. Kazan in his testing of, of Sonin, asks about the seasons. the the the, the, the um, realm of, of time change orderly unfolding of this into that this is a um, it's, it's one aspect of our experience An ancient master said if you want to know the meaning of Buddha nature you must observe times and seasons, causes and conditions. But Sonin comes back with this other aspect. She presents, you could say, the timeless spring of Tangen's poem. Kazan then asks her, presses her, he says, What about right now? What about now? Forget about this shadowless tree. And this is always the question that we have to address, respond to. We can only experience the breath right now. We can only question the koan right now. And Sonin's response to this question, what about right now, was a bow. She bowed. She Kepler used to um, talk about bowing as lowering the mast of ego. It's like we turn to and acknowledge, appreciate this vast, wide universe, which is our very body true body Another another verse from the Mumon Khan. Lifting his leg he kicks up the scented ocean lowering his head he looks down on the four dhyana heavens There is no place to put his gigantic body Please add a final line here This is, this is such a it's quite an extraordinary um poem you think it was written i don't know i think the 11th or 12th century when it's so postmodern please write the final line here we we're invited to write the final line because there is no final line. I to finish um, with a passage about bowing, and this comes from Barry Lopez. fine writer Um, and this is the the introduction to his uh, wonderful book Arctic Dreams and he talks about the different um, origins that the book had and one of them has to do with bowing he recounts One summer evening I was camped in the Western Brooks Range of Alaska with a friend. From the ridge where we had pitched our tent, we looked out over tens of square miles of rolling tundra along the southern edge of the carving grounds of the Western Arctic caribou herd. During those days we observed not only caribou and wolves, which we had come to study, but wolverine and red fox ground squirrels, delicate-legged whimbrels and aggressive jaguars all in the unfolding of their obscure lives. One night we watched in awe as a young grizzly bear tried repeatedly to force its way past a yearling wolf standing guard alone before a den of young pups. The bear eventually gave up and went on its way. We watched snowy owls and rough-legged hawks hunt and caribou drift like smoke through the valley. On the evening I am thinking about, it was breezy there on the Ilingnorak ridge, and cold. But the late-night sun, small as a kite in the northern sky, poured forth an energy that burned against my cheekbones. It was on that evening that I went on a walk for the first time among the tundra birds. They all build their nests on the ground, so their vulnerability is extreme. I gazed down at a single horned lark no bigger than my fist. She stared back, resolute as iron. As I approached, golden plovers abandoned their nests in hysterical ploys, artfully feigning a broken wing to distract me from the woven grass cups that couched their pale, darkly speckled eggs. Their eggs glowed with a soft, pure light like the window light in a Vermeer painting. I marveled at this intense and concentrated beauty on the vast table of the plain. I walked on to find Lapland longspurs as still on their nests as stones, their dark eyes gleaming. At the nest of two snowy owls I stopped. These are more formidable animals than plovers. Plovers, I stood motionless. The wild glare in their eyes receded. One owl settled back slow, slowly over its three eggs with an aura of primitive alertness. The other watched me and immediately sort of, sort of bond with my eyes if I started to move. I took to bowing on these evening walks. I would bow slightly with my hands in my pockets toward the birds and the evidence of life in their nests. Because of their fecundity, unexpected in this remote region, and because of the serene arctic light, that came down over the land like breath, like breathing. I remember the wild, dedicated lives of the birds that night, and also the abandon with which a small herd of caribou crossed the Kokolik River to the northwest, the incident of only a few moments. They pranced through like wild mares, kicking up sheets of water across the evening sun and shaking it off on the far side like huge dogs, a bloom of spray that glittered in the air around them like grains of mica. I remember the press of light against my face, the explosive skitter of calves among grazing caribou, and the warm intensity of the eggs beneath these resolute birds. Until then, perhaps because of the sun that was shining in the very middle of the night, so out of tune with my customary perception, I had never known how benign sunlight could be, how forgiving, how run through with compassion in a land that bore so eloquently the evidence of centuries of winter. During those summer days on the Ilinurak Ridge, There was no dark night, darkness never came. The birds were born, they flourished, and then flew south in the wake of the caribou. I bowed. I bowed to what knows no deliberating legislature or parliament, no religion, no competing theories of economics, an expression of allegiance with the mystery of life. I looked out over the Bering Sea and brought my hands folded to the breast of my parka, and bowed from the waist deeply toward the north, that great strait filled with life, the ice and the water. I held the bow to the pale sulphur sky at the northern rim of the earth. I held the bow until my back ached and my mind was emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and speculations. I bowed before the simple evidence of the moment in my life in a tangible place on the earth that was beautiful. I bowed again deeply toward the north and turned south to retrace my steps over the dark cobbles to the home where I was staying. I was full of appreciation for all that I had seen. For for Barry Lopez, he's he's really um, responding to to this question what about right now and his book becomes um, a kind of bow to the mystery our practice is essentially are learning to bow, learning to live in this world as it is, to notice its beauty, to live out of the truth of that beauty, To respond to suffering that is also there, our own and that of other beings. Or we can think of it as building a seamless monument. When master said, under a clear sky, my bow extends from the ocean to the mountain waterfall. Our bow fills the whole universe. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
0: without number. I I vow vow to to liberate endless blind passions. passions. I vow vow to to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow vow to to penetrate penetrate. the great way of Buddha. Buddha. I I vow to attain. attain I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate The great way of Buddha, I vow
1: to attain.
0: The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service, or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.ruh.org. Auckland